Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. At what point then did you decide or or did test pilot school become an option for you? <laughs> it goes back to when I was at University Air Squadron and there was a magazine called Air Clues that used to read avidly every month. And I remember reading, well, it must have been about 1974, 75, about an article about um, a Beagle 206 Basset airplane the ETPS had that had been converted into a variable stability airplane. So it had a computer on board and you could change the way in which it flew. And I read to that, and it was absolutely fascinating. And with, with my sort of scientific interests as well, that started to trigger the interest. So I read into it more. And then after I finished officer training, I held for a couple of months with the University of London Air Squadron, um, waiting to start basic flying training as Jet Provost. And they had training nights. And one night, one of the test pilots from A Squadron at Boscombe Down came down and gave a presentation on the spinning trials in the Hawk that were going on at the time and at that moment I decided I wanted to be a test pilot on a squadron at Boscombe Down and this was late 1976 and in December 1985 I arrived on a squadron at Boscombe Down as a test pilot but it was those two things that really triggered it for me but I think with my motivation for what I was doing, the three reasons why I wanted to be a test pilot. One was to learn more about the aeroplanes that I flew, why they flew, how they did. Uh, the second one was a desire to go off and do things in an aeroplane that nobody had ever done before. And the third one was it gave you the opportunity to fly lots of different sorts of aeroplanes. And that was my real drive for it. There is, uh, as far as I can tell... Um you know, there are a number of courses that, that, that military pilots can go through that are renowned for being very difficult to pass, you know, weapon schools being, being an obvious example. Um, what, what does test pilots uh, school sit then in that um, sort of scale of, of difficult things to, to achieve and to pass and to accomplish? Um, the thing with test pilot schools, you need, as an input standard, people of overall higher experience and higher ability than any of the other courses because of the nature of the work uh, that's going on. So it was an experience ability thing. So it was the, the sort of top end of the experience scale for a flying course for people to go and do. And how did they assess you then? Presumably you had to be accepted onto the course. Um, yes, you did. So that there you applied. And then when I did the course, there were three days of selection boards. So you went along, there was a maths exam, there was an aerodynamics exam, there was then an interview board with the people who taught the academics on the course. Um, there was an interview with the flying tutors and the 
DOS of Test Pilot School. Uh, and then there was the final main board, so it was the group captain in charge of Boscombe Down and other selected high-priced high people around who uh, did that. In addition, they obviously had access to your complete training records um, all the way through, and, and we had annual reports written on us. And in addition, when you applied for the course, then your squadron commander and your station commander had to write up what they thought of you and um, whether they were going to give you a recommendation to go or not. So there was no flying um, assessment? No, there wasn't. Um, and it's probably worthwhile saying that say, this was 84 when I applied. I actually applied in 83. <clears throat> but this was the time when 208 Squadron was moving. And so the boss then said, yeah, you'd be fine to go and do it. But no, you're not going to because you're coming to Lossy Mouth as a QI. Fine. Um, so I then went, uh, applied in 84 and went on the course in 85. I became an instructor on the school in 91 and all by four years since then I've been doing that job. Um, and we did go through phases of occasionally flying people and just to see how they get on. But the problem is people can have a good day or a bad day and we're looking for long-term solutions. And so we tried it for a while, but it was a bit too variable. If somebody came across really well in the interviews and the selection boards, um, but didn't do so well flying, but they had good flying write-ups, <clears throat> then we would probably still take them. And so it, it just wasn't worth the time to, uh, to do the flying. Is there then an assumption with something like Test Pilot School that um, you are a good stick, you, you, know, you know how to fly, you can be precise enough to fly the tests that need to be, need to be flown, and that actually the learning happens in, in the mind. It's a, an academic thing rather than a... A practical it, thing it is and and we used to, it used to be uh, people of above average ability so there were different gradings of, from sort of exceptional down to unsatisfactory and um, so above uh, exceptional um above average high average average so we also asked for people who had a current above average assessment um but ability is all about the potential to learn so if somebody's got above average ability it means they've got the potential to learn lots of skill sets so when they come on the course they may not necessarily have had all of the skill sets that were required but they demonstrated the ability to learn them from what they'd done in their previous careers and we could teach them those those skills so what, so what do you learn at test pilot school then? um the course is typically split up into academic aspects <clears throat> of the theory of different subjects. So we'll split them up overall into flying qualities, how an airplane flies, the performance aspects of an airplane, and the systems on board. And obviously, as time has gone on, the, the systems and the avionics have become a, a much larger portion of the, uh, of the course. So there will be relevant academic aspects there. And then we will go off, and if there are specific what we call test techniques, specific ways of flying airplanes to get the data to assess them. We will go off and teach those on a dual sortie in one airplane type. Uh, and then we'll get the students to go off in another airplane type to do an assessment of that aspect to then come back and write reports. Because a lot of flight testing is about planning and it's about reporting. It's about working as a team. Uh, and so we use airplanes and different profiles on the course really is a vehicle to teach the overall aspects and probably within flight tests the most 10 percent of your workload is actually being air, airplane uh, airborne airplane especially now more and more is done um, in ground-based simulation computation whereas when i started then we used to have to do more in the air because we didn't have the ground-based synthetics to be able to do what we do now there's a good uh 
BBC documentary. It's on YouTube. It's called a Test Pilot. I think it's 1981 or something like that. that um, sort of the series was filmed in 1985. Okay. It went out 86, 87. And yes, my brown haired mustachioed younger brother was in it. <laughs> is, is that how it is today? I mean, notwithstanding the technology change that you just talked about, synthetic sort of training aids, that kind of stuff. Does, is it still pretty much the same flow, the same process today? Um, philosophically, the aims and the structure are very similar. But it's one of those things that it's very easy to look at how things have changed over time vertically. But you have to look at how society, and in this case aviation, has changed horizontally. So if you put ETPS then into the context of military aviation back in the mid-80s, um, then I think where we are today, then if you put test pilot scores nowadays in the context of 2020 aviation, then it fits in the same place. So it's very misleading in some ways to look at how things have changed. You've got to put them in the context of the current environment. Once, you, once you're graduated from ETPS, and I should say that's Empire Test Pilot School, yes, for anybody yes. who's, who's listening, um, you became project pilot, I think, on the, the Buccaneer, the Tornado GL1, and the Jaguar. Yeah, so what we used to do on the squadron on each time, I went to uh, Ace, what was called A Squadron at Boscombe Down, that was the fighter test squadron and covered the high performance trainers as well. And what happened is you'd start off there as project pilot on a, a fairly straightforward established project and then deputy project pilot on one of the more um, cutting ones, if you like. And then as you developed and learnt, then you would go on to project pilot. So I started off as project pilot on um, Hunter we had that was basically for simulated chemical attacks on the army, uh, which again was great fun. Um, but I did that and I was deputy project pilot on the Jaguar. Uh, and then I became project pilot on the Jaguar converted to the Tornado uh, GR1 and the F3, um, and then was deputy project pilot on the Tornado GR, then moved on to being project pilot on that, uh, and then on things like the Jaguar, somebody else would take it over as project pilot, and I would be the deputy project pilot just to help them out, and it went on, and then after um, about three and a half years in the squadron, I became the flight commander. So it changed from being called A squadron to fixed wing test squadron and it amalgamated with what was B squadron heavy aircraft test squadron in early 88 and we had a fast jet flight and um, a multi-engine flight so I became the flight commander for the fast jet flight. So, so can you give us some examples of the work that you did then because people might look at those types and say well well some of those were pretty old even back then they must have been tested to death what, what on earth could a test pilot be doing in those and, and still be adding value for? A lot of it actually was with new weapons because you put weapons on the aeroplane, then they're going to change aerodynamics, how the airflow is over the aeroplane, and also the inertias and the masses. Um, and so there were always those aspects, and that was probably a lot of it. So you'd have to clear the flight envelope that was going to go into service with new weapons on. Uh, once we started to get into digital, computerized navitank systems, like on the Jaguar and the Tornado, then new software loads was a large part of it new radios um, and when I started off certainly on the tornado we were still into what we called envelope expansion so that there was it's always a progressive incremental build-up to the final 
how fast can you go, how much G can you pull, how high can you go, and you go incrementally in steps, and we were certainly still doing that when I first came to the programme. New engines come along that go into the aeroplanes, and maybe new brakes. So it's really new pieces of kit or new software going into the aeroplane that need to be proven that they work as advertised, that they meet the specifications. If they don't, then the contractors can go and sort it out. Um, if you haven't asked for the right things, then you go into different places to try and sort it out. And there were two aspects to it, really. One was safety, uh, and the other one was operational effectiveness. So was it safe, or more to the point, were there any major safety issues that meant that the average squadron pilot couldn't safely fly the airplane in an envelope, but also could it do the mission? It may be safe, but it couldn't do the mission. It may be able to do the mission, but it wasn't necessarily safe. And that's where the real judgment came from. So it sounds like the RAF had a sort of combined model of technical testing and operational testing in the same place. I mean, if you look at the the American model, certainly with the Air Force, they have a technical test uh, that goes through Air Force Material Command up, yep. at, up at Edwards. Our operational testing is done by typically the 422 at, at Nellis, and there's some you know squadrons also out at Eglin that, that do operational tests. Um, so they, they sort of hand it off. The, the technical test guys say, well, it does what it says it does. You now take it and develop the tactics for it. But your, the model you've worked with is then a combined model where ETPS, you did all of it? No, not really. Um, if you go back to days of yore, there was, I'm trying to remember the name of it at West Raynham, there used to be a sort of fighter um, operational development unit. Um, and when I was first at Boscombe, about three years of the early 80s, then all of the operational trials were run by an organization called CTTO, the Central Trials and Tactics Organization, uh, and they formed the Tornado Operational Evaluation Unit. So this was the start of overuse. So what they would do is to take an airplane that had been cleared by the developmental flight test side and work out how the squadrons were going to use it operationally. Uh, and that's then they rolled in the Harrier and the Jaguar, and it became known as a Strike Attack Operational Evaluation Unit. There was a similar one for the F3 Tornado over at Coningsby. But we used to do some joint work with them. And often if they were short of a pilot, they would ask if I would go along and help them out. And we had some joint trials so that if it was something new that we cleared from a developmental point of view and cleared the flight envelope, then we would often be involved with our experience helping them to develop the tactics that are required. You mentioned... Um, Harrier. Yeah. Where is that on your CV? I didn't see it. No, very little. Um, what tended to happen on A Squadron days is the major trials types then were the Tornado and the Harrier. So people tended to fly one or the other. Uh, and the Harrier having some very quirky handling characteristics, then the people who were on the... After the Harrier was established in service, tended to be people with Harrier operation experience who went there. Uh, I've had, I managed to get a couple of trips in the T4, managed to get one solo trip in the Sea Harrier um, as part of an exercise at ETPS. Uh, and I had a trip in a T12A just before the Harrier went out of service in 2010. So very little, but yeah, I managed one solo trip in the Harrier. We uh, sort of jumping ahead to, to the present day, when we were talking offline before you sent me some biographical data and you've got 11,000 hours, sounds like about sort of seven and a half of, the, of that is an ejection seat fitted aircraft. Um, uh, something like that, yeah. So, so the the checkout process for somebody with your experience today, um, could you just go and somebody give you a manual and say, read this, and you just go and jump in anything and fly it? Not nowadays. It's quite interesting if you actually 
look back to some of the conversions I did. My conversion of the Phantom was probably an interesting one in 1987, where I went to Lucas, um, where they had the Phantom Operational Conversion Unit. And there were two of us went up there, and I, we did the one-day senior officers refresher ground school. So it was the real, this is what you really need to know. I think we had one two-hour slot in the simulator between us, and then we did two dual trips each, uh, in the aeroplane, so we finished by Wednesday lunchtime, so it's two and a half days, and then went back and started flying the Phantom at Boscombe. Um, those days, and I think the interesting one was because we did all the uh, release of service trials on the Tucano when I was there, and my Tucano checkout was going on a spinning trial sortie with a friend, I was in the front seat, he was in the back, and at the end of the sortie, I think we did a stall in the practice force landing, uh, and that was me checked out in the Tucano. So that was in the 80s, so nowadays, typically, people will go and do probably a full conversion or full type rating course. They may not do all of the operational aspects, but now with, with people we've had who've gone through test pilot school with a tornado background, say, who are then going off to test typhoon, they'll often send them to a squadron for a, typh a full conversion and then go to a typhoon squadron for six months before they get involved with flight test. Um, and culture and everything else has changed, and that's the way typically things are done nowadays. So people do tend to do full type ratings. Typhoon's another one that I didn't see in your bio. Have you flown it? I've flown it once. Uh, and again, it was um, an end of course exercise with some students at ETPS. Uh, so it's 2009, so I had, yet yeah, one trip. And if you've only got one trip, you've got to go and do all the uh, the interesting things. So it was a uh, reheat climb from takeoff. So it's takeoff to, I think, 35,000 feet in 90 seconds and then over the North Sea and out to 1.6 Mach. And then, you know, just try and get the maximum you can out of it in one sortie. Great fun. Is there any part of you that has ever been uh, felt sort of not ready for some of the things that you're, you're doing? I mean, you talk about your the early the early days when you started to learn to fly. It was obviously in your comfort zone. You didn't really struggle with anything. Have you ever sort of found yourself in the cockpit on a test flight or any other kind of flight where you thought, "Shit, I'm not not quite prepared for this. I'm not quite ready for it." Um, I think there have been times where I have been asked to do something, probably an airplane that I was already qualified on but maybe not current or just something where it's a case of no I am not ready to go and do this sortie today I need more preparation uh, and it's one of the big things and we do get good support that um, we are the ultimate filters if you like of saying no I'm not going to go and fly that sortie and, and we will always get total support in doing that and saying no I'm not going to go and fly it um, so there are those occasions that may be fatigue it may be the weather it may be the airplane state um and it's and it's interesting obviously with a lot of my flying outside of the military environment then airplane serviceability state is one of the big ones where maybe an airplane very comfortable with but I say, no, i'm not going to go and fly it i think one of the the times that i felt most uncomfortable and underconfident was back in a squadron days when we were asked to do an assessment of weight shift microlites for potential use by special forces and just for looking at damage and things around airfields in, in Cold War days. So we had somebody come in from um, a school and brought it in and we did a full sort of conversion to it. But the big thing is that the controls work at times the opposite way around. So in particular, steering on the ground. So let's say with a normal aeroplane where you steer it with the rudder pedals with your feet. If you want to turn left, you push on the left pedal. But if you now imagine bike handlebars and you want to turn left, then you actually push on the right side. And steering on the ground for these microlites was effectively 
like bicycle handlebars. So if I was taxiing it and I wanted to go left, I could. I had the time to think. I want to go left. I'm going to deflect the uh, the bar in this direction. The problem was then on landing or takeoff. If suddenly it yaws off, you instinctively put in an intuitive input that is the wrong way and make it worse. And it's the same with um, climbing, descending, rolling left, rolling right. That I didn't find quite as bad as the ground steering. But that was probably the thing that took me the greatest outside of my comfort zone of anything I've ever done in an aeroplane. So, Dave, you talked about the Basset, the, the variable stability Basset, that yes. had sort of so interested you as a, as a young man. Yeah. And um, when you got to Boscombe, you became project pilot for the variable stability Hawk. Yeah. Is that correct? It is, yeah. They looked for a development um, to really continue on with a more modern aeroplane with a bigger performance envelope. Um, and MOD Procurement Executive was, was then picked up three Hawks straight from the production line. Um, for use by ETPS, and they decided to make one of them into a variable stability aeroplane. Uh, and the conversion work was done by the College of Aeronautics at Cranfield. Um, and yeah, that was one of the projects that I picked up early on A Squadron. So I did the flying on that from Flight One, which was a production flight test, which I flew with one of the Dunsville test pilots, all the way through to taking it into service. And really, we finished, or it took us about five, mid 86, we first flew it. And it was finished the end of 90. I basically went with the aeroplane to ETPS. So what is it? What's, what's the purpose of it? What does it do? What's it like to fly? Um, it was reconfigured. So in the front seat, there were uh, electronic glass copper displays. And when you move the stick uh, and the rudder pedals, then there was a hydraulic artificial field system that could change the force characteristics. And there were four sensors on the stick. So they then sent a signal to a computer. And you could then set parameters to represent different aerodynamic characteristics on the airplane, such that it would respond in different ways. So, for example, you can make it roll faster. You could need higher stick forces, bigger stick displacements. Um, but we had the advantage it was aerobatic. So we can actually look at these characteristics through all sorts of different maneuvers. We could fly it in formation. Um, so it was a fascinating project. But what do you do with it then? So, so if you, you can change the way it, it behaves. Uh, and what is the value of that to you as a, a, a test pilot or as a, a member of the RAF? Well, if you're trying to train somebody to be a test pilot, you need them to experience as wide a variety of characteristics they possibly can, good and bad. Because when they get involved with the development program on an airplane, they are going to see in the end of the day some bad characteristics. And there's two aspects. They need to be able to describe it so that they can then the, the designer can improve the airplane, but also to bring it back safely and land it. So it's to give people the experience of characteristics of an airplane that they may see in a development program that you're not going to get in an airplane that's cleared into service. I obviously don't want to get you in a position where you're saying anything negative about anything that that's, that is uh, sort of in the public domain, but can you describe a, a characteristic that you've um, experienced in an operational type that you're surprised managed to, to sort of make it that far without being picked up? Is there anything that uh, anything you've flown that has an odd handling characteristic or something particularly quirky that you thought should have been detected and, and resolved? I mean, what we normally do, we 
refer to them as deficiencies, and so you categorise them into either unsatisfactory or unacceptable. If something's unacceptable, we won't clear it into service. If it's unsatisfactory, we will. We'll give operating advice, we'll put warnings in manuals, but the pilot has to work harder to compensate for what that deficiency is. Um, and the hunter is a classic example that if you're going down a dive attack strafing and then you try to pull up and capture 6G, which we did very rapidly on recovery, then the G tends to overshoot what you want um, and you can overstress the aeroplane. So that's to, and there's, there's about three contributory factors to that and the hunter. But that's an old design of aeroplane, but pilots were supposed to man up and be able to cope with it uh, and overcome it. So that's the whole way in which we look at things like this. So in the, in the 45 years you've been flying, um, you must have had some interesting moments. I have. Um, and there's some really interesting ones in flight test. There was one in a tornado. It was about 1986 or seven. Um, it was part of the final envelope expansion aspects of it. Uh, it was in a prototype airplane in Italy. And it involved flying with the wings and the flaps in a certain position. Um, the spin prevention instance limiting system turned off and then going to a hard turn one way, rolling it as rapidly as I could whilst maintaining the pull through 180 degrees and then rolling it back again. So it was a pretty extreme test. Um, and this is known as rapid rolling. So I did the first half of the roll and it was actually quite slow. And, and something's sort of sticking in mind. I remember thinking... Why do they call this rapid rolling? Because it was so slow. I then reversed the roll and it basically stopped rolling. And I was current from spinning the hunter and I knew that it really shouldn't be doing this. So I started to centralise the controls, which is what you always do when you essentially lost control or about to lose control of the aeroplane. But I was a bit late. Uh, and this thing just departed from control flight. And within two seconds uh, it was about 340 knots when, when it departed within two seconds it was a fully developed spin um, so i went through the spin recovery characteristics as i thought or control inputs i thought and it's not clear for intentional spinning so i never spun the tornado um, and i did all the things that i thought i had to but this showed no signs of recovering whatsoever now, i should add that my navigator on this trip it was actually his first trip in the ground attack version of the tornado you've flown the air defense ones um, and virtually nothing was said as we were coming down on this. And halfway down, I remember thinking, well, as altitude reduces and air density increases, recovery characteristics improve, followed a nanosecond later by an expletive, and then I'm going to have to eject. <laughs> and the, um, the minimum for ejecting from a swim was 10,000 feet. Over the sea, I decided to give it the benefit of the doubt that I go at nine. Um, and just as we got to 10,000 feet, I started to see signs of recovery and the only thing that had been said from the back seat on the way down um it was this little voice in the back said 11,000 when we got to 11,000 feet great call because that was 1,000 feet to go to our brief uh, ejection at 10 it just started to recover um and the book said wait until 200 knots before you start to pull out of the dive well we actually had two fuel tanks and five bombs on the airplane so it was draggy and it just wasn't accelerating so at about 130 knots at 8,000 feet put the manoeuvre flap and slat out, roll wings level and started to pull out of the dive. And it was obvious then that we, we had plenty of height. And halfway through the pullout, the second thing was said was, yee-haw, from the back seat. And we bottomed at 3,000 feet and sort of... Um, the engines were still going, lost a few channels off the flight control system, uh, went back and um, landed. And we sat atop of one of Rome's seven hills and had a few glasses of red wine that night. 
Is there a you know you 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 describe at that moment um, a, a rational set of thought processes that occur, yeah. as opposed to sort of a, um, a a sort of fight or flight reaction, which is yeah. you know the opposite of perhaps what you want. Um, how much of that is down to conditioning? How much of that is down to experience? How much of that is just intrinsic within you as an individual? Is it something you can learn, or are you just born with that? No, I think a lot of it comes from experience. Um, so that if you've built up a mental model of a situation and that situation occurs, you will react without thinking. I had one um, not related to flight test, but in a hunter about six years ago, um, a recurrency ride for another pilot. Um, we'd been flying for about 50 minutes. We'd, it was about the second touch and go. Um, so we touched down on the runway, 10,000 foot runway, selected for, well, it was good touchdown, selected for power. And as the engine wound up, there was a monstrous bang and vibrations and the other part was flying the airplane but without any conscious thought i just close the throttle stream the brake chute pull the stick back started braking then said i have control and it's fascinating to go back and analyze your own reactions and responses to things like that whereas in the case of this with the spin then my initial reactions of centralizing the controls and actually went to full forward stick was instinctive based on experience of spinning the hunter. But thereafter, it was a case of conscious thought. And we have what's called memory items. Um, and so I had to recall what the spin recovery drill was from memory uh, and actually complete it. What was really interesting is that one of the things you do, you go throttles to idle fullback stick stick fully in the direction of spin and i'd actually gone stick fully out of spin because i'd misidentified the direction of spin but the departure had been so rapid and your acceleration was something that you can't ever simulate or do clinical trials on um, and so i'd actually done what i thought was required but i'd misidentified the direction of spin which is why it took so long to recover what sort of challenge does that that um, pose then in terms of having lots of different aircraft types that you may fly over a given period of time and having memory items that are different for each of them and because of the way that, that each aircraft is, is sort of aerodynamically built or, or sort of performs um, some of the instinctive things that you may do are appropriate for one but not for another yeah, and that's a very interesting point, that by flying lots of types of aeroplanes, if you have to make a decision, you've got a bigger experience base on which to base your judgment. Um, but there are some things that are pretty instinctive across a lot of aeroplanes, uh, but there are others that are really type-specific, and that's where recurrent training comes. Any skill you have uh, may be perishable to a greater or lesser extent, um, and the more experience you have on an aeroplane on a certain characteristic, then the less perishable that knowledge. If you like, riding a bike is an analogy. That's not a perishable skill. Once you've learned to ride a bike, you can always ride a bike. Um, but a lot of other things then are that you need to do to maintain your skill levels. And what typically happens is if you have two aeroplanes where things are grossly different, there's not too much of a problem. If you have two where things are almost the same and very similar but slightly different that is where the biggest potential for making a mistake comes what about judgment and judgment something that we talked about offline a, a little bit you know on the phone a few months ago and a little bit today where does judgment come into the business of flying judgment is vital and here we're going to get some personal opinions from me from when i started 
to learn to fly, then judgment was one of the big things that was really stressed, very important to make. As time has gone on throughout society, and it's not just in aviation, but all aspects, we are far more reliant on process uh, and on regulations to the extent where judgment, in my opinion, is not exercised as much as it should be in a lot of environments, including some aspects of aviation. And judgment is really what makes or breaks it um, for a lot of situations. It is still vital, however much you have a process-driven um, culture. In, in all these years of flying, then, what's been your favourite type to fly? What's been the most challenging to fly? I think the favourite type is the hunter, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but the most... Probably my favourite aeroplane, and, and the one that was very difficult to fly, was a Messerschmitt 109 I used to fly Black 6. It was a totally original 109G that was captured in uh, Libya in 1943. And we displayed it uh, between 1991 and 1997. Uh, very challenging aeroplane, the Messerschmitt, on takeoff and landing. But the whole originality of the airframe, the ethos of the team that had rebuilt it and operated it is very, very special. What's challenged you? What, what, have, you, what, is there, what, what have you flown and landed and thought, well... You know, bugger that, that that took all of my skill and experience and judgment to fly. Um, I think what tends to happen is it's aeroplanes that have got challenging characteristics on takeoff and landing where you've got marginal winds. So, normally strong crosswinds, maybe a tailwind component. So, it's the circumstances under which you are flying the aeroplane. Um, as far as I, I've had a few. You know, interesting engine problems should we say one was with the hunter to shed a blade off the first stage of the compressor that completely trashed the engine um in a p51 it was only the fifth trip i'd done had a drop valve rod into the engine so it was this very loud explosion about every five seconds couldn't maintain level flight um but there was a strip available to land on which we had declared was unsuitable for normal landings but i landed on it uh, and it was fine um, and they changed the engine um, so there have been a few like that. I'm trying to think of any. There was another one, actually, where it was, again, in the late 80s, and they were just getting to measuring radar cross-section on aeroplanes. Um, and one of the ones they were doing was the Hawk, uh, and they got a Hawk in from Broadie because they wanted one with missiles on them. You couldn't put missiles on ours. Um, and then it was to fly it against a detector sensor on the ground at 600 feet and it's over the over an airfield um erect with the missiles on then inverted and so i picked up as a task to go and fly this up and down the airfield upside down at 600 feet um, so i went into practice um, and worked myself down progressively in one of our airplanes then went off in the airplane and just solo nobody in the back seat because there was nobody else to go went up high turned it upside down for loose articles made sure the engine would keep running that was all fine came down over the airfield first run rolled inverted got to the point rolled out and the airplane got back to wings level and the stick was stuck hard over it was jammed so the airplane kept on rolling um, now adrenaline does build up very rapidly and give you a great increase in strength and with both hands i managed to free the restriction um, without the bank angle getting excessive uh, and then it was back to normal so i turned downwind and landed um, and there was a, a wing retaining bush not from the airplane just as a loose article lying on top of the control rods um, underneath the wing pads, a borrowed aeroplane, and there's no reason that our engineers should ever have got down into the depth of looking for that. Um, so that was quite a, an interesting one as well. You haven't mentioned helicopters. No, I've never been qualified in helicopters, but I've had the opportunity to fly quite a few different helicopters um, within the flight test environment. And yes, it's something 
I enjoy going off and flying them, and uh, I can basically fly one. I haven't got much of a clue of really what I'm doing with it. But yeah, I've flown ones from the Bell 47, from the MASH film, through to the Apache and the Seeking and a few other things. So yeah, it's always good fun. The McKenna Trophy. The trophy is awarded to the best all-round student. I ask our guest of honour to present this coveted award to Flight Lieutenant Dave Southwood, Royal Air Force. For most, the only tangible reward is the certificate. That and the right to add the letters TP after their name. And, of course, the relief that it is all finally 